Today, by God's grace, we're finishing our summer preaching series uh, in Jesus' Upper Room Discourse in John 13 through 16. I'm learning uh, now that uh, as I finish a short sermon series or any sermon series, that there's a tinge of sadness leaving what we've been studying together. Uh, Jesus and John uh, have been my constant companions in the study over the summer, and I trust that they uh, have been your companions as well. Uh, but the, uh, the great joy that we have here is that Jesus, uh, by uh, his word and by his spirit, continues to minister to his people, whether we're reading uh, here uh, the words of our Savior or as next week when we return to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, read up. Uh, but the Lord is still with his people. Uh, that's the overarching message of this upper room discourse. He's going away, but he will come back. Uh, for those of you who weren't with us last week, you'll notice we are uh, in part two uh, of a two-part uh, section here. Uh, in, Luke, in John chapter 16, we're going to begin in verse 16 and read through 33. For those who weren't here last week, we saw the disciples confused. Jesus has been talking about going away and coming again, and they're not sure what he means. In the midst of their questioning, the Lord points out that when you see the resurrection, when you believe in the joy of Jesus' finished work, all of your questions will be answered. That was the point uh, of uh, last week and, and what we saw coming right up through uh, the beginning of verse 23. But we're going to pick up today, our focus will be the second half of verse 23 when Jesus makes another truly, truly I say to you statement, a second answer to their confusion. And we're going to begin our reading uh, back in verse 16, so that we see the context. And before we read, uh, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious King and Lord, we thank you for this word which you have given, which is your word, which we have already prayed and confessed is sharper than a double-edged sword which will divide us and lay us bare before you. We pray that you would do that work by your Spirit as we read it. We pray that you would give us words of life that we would be drawn to trust in you and believe in all that is revealed here about your Son, our only Savior. Lord, give us faith. Give us love for yourself. Give us worshiping hearts today, we pray in your name. Amen. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. 
And now our focus for today's study. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. You know, it is frightening sometimes to think uh, what some people will entrust their lives to. On June 7th, earlier this summer, Coast Guardsman stationed in Juneau, Alaska, rescued a man who was attempting to paddle his way 30 miles down the Gastineau Channel. He was in a homemade raft. It was an inflatable boat made mostly of duct tape. On board, he had himself, his dog, and food and water to survive a few days. What he did not have on board was a life vest. And so when a passing barge left him taking on water, the Coast Guard intervened and they pulled him and his dog onto their 25-foot rescue boat. Now I know, in Alaska, people have to be more resilient, right? Self-reliance and all that. But there's got to be some limit to that sort of thing. Clearly, this guy did not perceive the danger of his voyage. Now, the, the news story that I read about this uh, did not retell the, the conversation that he had when they picked him up. Perhaps to save face, they didn't even tell you his name. But I wonder if, if he wanted to be rescued. I wonder if he refused to be rescued. You could imagine, maybe, that uh, someone in that situation, what if he was worried that the 25-foot Coast Guard vessel was unable to carry him? What if he thought he couldn't risk getting on their boat? What if he thought, despite the danger, that he had to go it alone? Well, the original actually happened. And my reimagining of it might seem a little far-fetched to you, but between those two, we have the spectrum of man in his search for spiritual safety, don't we? There are some people who uh, paddle along without a care or a thought in the world never thinking that they need any sort of rescue. Perhaps they've suppressed the truth of their situation for so long that uh, they've forgotten that there is anything that, uh, that they need to be saved from. Perhaps the whole concept of the Coast Guard seems just like a phantom that's been invented by weak people with no sense of adventure. 
Perhaps they're worried that if they get on someone else's boat, they're going to have to go on a course that they have not charted. Whatever it is, self-reliance wins the day, and they, uh, they do not want a rescue. They do not want safety. Others would jump at the chance for safety if only they could believe in it, if only they could trust in it. But they've convinced themselves that they are unworthy of rescue. Convinced themselves that they have to paddle at least this far. Maybe that far. Maybe a little further to to prove that that they are really serious about this thing. Convince themselves that the rescue vessel is too good to be true. I trust that you can see through the metaphor here. It's pretty thin at this point. Some people reject salvation because they are sure they do not need it. Others spend their days anxious and restless. Despite the rescue that Jesus promises, they are sure that there is still so much that they have to do. Now, it's no surprise when unbelievers take either of those options. The Bible tells us that man in his natural state is so dead in his sin that he will never move toward God. He will only be fleeing from him until and unless the Holy Spirit works in his heart and regenerates him and gives him new life and faith and repentance. It's not a surprise when this happens with unbelievers and they reject salvation and safety in Jesus. But the sad truth is that for many of us believers, we often act much more like the man in the dinghy than the one who is safe in the arms of his rescuer. We live by that insatiable urge to self-reliance. And we wind up either oblivious to our situation or we wind up anxious. But either way, it amounts to the same thing, doesn't it? Struggling hard to keep our own heads above water. There's a better way. There's a way that the Lord gives his disciples in the passage that we've just read. It's not the way of ignorance. It's not the way of anxiety, it is the way of assurance. The blessing of a real spiritual rest where you can finally stop paddling to keep yourself above water. The rest that comes from knowing that in Jesus you are safe and that even in the face of affliction and tribulation there is peace and there is one who satisfies. The way of assurance. Now, when we speak of assurance in the church, there are doubtless many who sit there and they think, yeah, but that's that secret club that you can only get into if. You've got to have a merit badge for special achievement if you want assurance. That's something that only happens for super Christians. That's not how assurance works, brothers and sisters. This rest that we're speaking of, this lack of anxiety, this resting in Jesus Christ is Jesus' gift to all of his people. It's true that some may struggle to recognize it. It's true that some may wait long in their faith until they experience it. But by the Spirit's work in ordinary Christians, assurance can be yours. And here's why. Because assurance of salvation has the same foundation as what got us into the whole thing in the beginning. Assurance of salvation is the result of having believed in who Jesus is and what he accomplished in the world. Last week we spoke an awful lot of joy. 
joy in the resurrection, joy in the crucifixion and resurrection, the combined and completed work of Jesus Christ. But in the Christian life, joy goes by another name. It's called assurance. That's spiritual rest. You see, they both have the same source. It is the completed work of Jesus' atoning death and life-giving resurrection. So because Jesus' work is finished, you can have assurance in place of anxiety. Now, one of the reasons I think that, that we get this idea that assurance is reserved only for the select few is that we have a hard time recognizing it in the wild. What does assurance even look like? How would I know if I have it or it shows up in me or in someone else? Where do I see it? And Jesus gives us two examples in this passage. Assurance shows up when it shows up, and it looks like uh, boldness with the Father in prayer. It looks like peace in the midst of your tribulation. Boldness with the Father in prayer and peace in the midst of your tribulations. Let's consider that first one. That Jesus' finished work gives us boldness with the Father. Now it's worth noting that Jesus wants his disciples to have boldness with the Father in prayer. That might seem obvious to you if you've been with us this summer. It might seem obvious to you because you know how math works. And you can simply go through and you can count up the number of times that Jesus has told us in these chapters that we ought to pray in his name. You can go through and count the number of promises he's given that when we do that, when we come to the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, that God hears us and he will answer us. And so that might seem obvious to you, but it ought not to be uh, unimportant to you. It ought not to be insignificant. Think of all the many areas in your life where God's word does not give you specific and direct teaching. Not that you're left in the dark in, in any of those areas. You know, the Bible doesn't talk about uh, Twitter or Instagram. The Bible-believing Christians can take Christian charity and can apply that to the way that we ought to be using uh, social media. The Bible doesn't speak anything about pornography or higher education or what to do on a first date. But there's biblical wisdom in all of those things. There's a biblical approach to all of those things. But for so very many things that you need to tackle in your daily life, you are left to the application of principles. Solid principles, firm principles. But there's a little wisdom involved. Now, when it comes to our prayer lives, we have specific directions, don't we? How ought we to pray? Well, we ought to come to the Lord. Whatever you ask the Father in my name... He will give it to you. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. The specific instruction is that Jesus wants your life to be full of joy and so he wants your life to be full of prayer. Jesus wants you to have boldness with the Father. He wants you to come to the Lord with boldness, to come uh, in the name of Jesus, full of confidence that you'll be heard, full of faith that it will be done. And how many of us would say that boldness is the defining characteristic of our prayer? If you were to pick just one word to describe your prayer life, what would you choose? What are the options? I trust that by God's grace, many here in the room would say that, that their prayer life is a, a refuge for them. It is a blessing in the midst of a storm-tossed world, but probably just as many would say, well, my prayer life is hasty meandering, sometimes awkward, maybe non-existent. 
How many of us are worried that we ask too much of the Lord in prayer? How many of us are worried that we're too bold with the Father, that we come too often to the throne of grace? Yet this is what the Lord wants for his people. He wants them to have boldness before the Father in prayer. Now, boldness comes from understanding a few things, doesn't it? It comes from understanding first that there's somebody worth talking to. Nobody ever needed boldness to speak to themselves. That's easy. That's what you do when you think nobody else is looking. That's what you do to prepare for boldness. You know that you've got to have a hard conversation later with somebody, and so you have that rehearsal conversation all by yourself, and you run through the options. And that's not bold. That's easy. But boldness requires that you believe there's somebody worth talking to. It also requires that that you know that the person who's worth talking to is willing to hear you. There's a difference between boldness and foolishness. I might believe that the President of the United States exists. I might even believe that he's worth speaking to. But if I were to think that I were going to call him on the phone tomorrow and expect him to take my calls, that wouldn't be boldness, that'd be foolishness. He doesn't have time to listen to my concerns. He has many other things on his plate. He doesn't need to take uh, my my encouragement or my opinion. There's a difference between foolishness and boldness. It's that idea of knowing that someone is willing to hear you. Just like there's a difference between boldness and foolishness, so there is a difference between boldness and desperation, isn't there? Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and, and when he came down, he found a man whose son had a demon. The other disciples were there, and they could not drive out the demon, despite their success with some other demons. And the man fell at Jesus' feet and cried out to him. Do you remember his prayer? If you can do anything, help us. Is that a prayer of boldness, or is that a prayer of desperation? What makes the difference? You see, boldness is the culmination of understanding a few things, that there is someone who is there to hear you, that they are willing to hear you, and that they are able to help you. This is what the Lord wants for his people in prayer. But Hebrews chapter 11 puts it much better than that. It says, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Boldness in prayer with the Father. That's what Jesus wants for his people. So often we see the opposite of this from the media, from Hollywood. I suppose that a nervous, uh, baseless, anxious prayer makes for better drama, doesn't it? So so convinced Christians almost never take the spotlight in tense moments in the shows that we watch. In the second season of Downton Abbey, there is a scene where Lady Mary is praying for Matthew, her love interest. Matthew has been sent off to fight in the Great War, and here is what Lady Mary prays. Dear Lord... I don't pretend to have much credit with you. I'm not even sure that you're there, but if you are there, and if I've ever done anything good, I beg you to keep him safe. That's moving, isn't it? And completely wrong. That is not prayer to a powerful God. That is a wish dream and something like Santa Claus or karma. If I've done well enough, I might get what I want. If you're there, you might just hear me. 
So how do we move on from that kind of drivel and move into boldness with the Father? Where does it come from? It comes from seeing the completed work of Jesus Christ. Notice the shift between verses 24 and 26. 24, he says, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Down to verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name. If you've got an ESV, it puts it in two separate paragraphs, but you can understand that that's the same thought, isn't it? There is coming a shift. When Jesus was with his disciples, they prayed probably like every other good Jew would pray. They came before the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They trusted in the intercession of priests. They looked to that reminder of the blood of bulls and goats that God actually is willing to hear and forgive his people. But there was coming a time when they would pray in a different way, under the work of a new mediator and through a new channel. When does that shift occur? When does it take place? What's the shift from until now to in that day? Remember the context that we've been seeing uh, in this chapter the last few weeks. Jesus has been telling them that there is a change coming and what they understand about the Lord. Back in verses 12 and 13, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. And then what we saw last week, verse 23, in the day that your sorrow turns into joy, when you see that my work has been completed, then you won't have any other questions about the Father. And what stands in our passage between verses 24 and 26? Well, there's coming a day when you will know openly about the Father. No more figures of speech, no more cryptic language, but you will see and you will know exactly as he is. They're all the same moment of fulfillment, aren't they? There's a moment when the disciples, at least, from their vantage point, will be able to look on the Lord, the one who is crucified, dead, and buried, the one who is raised again on the third day, the one who eclipses all of those sacrifices and all of the priests who came before him who were intended only to point to him, the one who they see now as the only true mediator, the one whose work is complete. That's when the shift happens. When they believe on the basis of Jesus' finished work. That's when they'll have boldness with the Father. And that's when you have boldness with the Father. At the dawn of the smartphone revolution, we might call it, it was one of the cellular networks, and they had this running ad. The tagline was, your phone is only as good as the network it's on. It doesn't matter how fast your processor works was. It didn't matter how many apps and bells and whistles your phone had. If you couldn't connect, it's simply a glorified calculator. Jesus is saying the same thing about our prayer. Think about all the separation of the fall. Think about all those shadows of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Think about all that language from Isaiah in chapter 59 of, of God's Faith being hidden from us so that he does not hear us because our sin has caused the separation. All of it reminding us that sinful man cannot come by himself before a living God, before a righteous God. But when we see Jesus' life and his death and his life again, we are convinced that he has opened up the channels of communication. He is the one that proves there is somebody there who is listening and able to save. 
It is wonderfully like that passage in the Old Testament in Exodus. When the people in Israel, in Egypt rather, are crying out to the Lord under the bondage of slavery. And the Lord says something amazing to Moses. He says, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cries, and behold, I have come down to save them. And when we see Jesus' finished work for what it is, we look and we recognize that God has seen the affliction of his people under sin. He has heard their cries for deliverance, and behold, he came down to save us. And we suddenly have boldness and access to the Father. This is the kind of access that God only gives to his own. This isn't a sort of common sort of boldness that everybody has, whether they believe he's there or not, no matter what they may know. This is a boldness that comes only to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point of verse 27, isn't it? What does it say? The Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. And this is the promise that John mentioned all the way back in the opening of his gospel. That Jesus came to those who were his own and many of them did not receive him. They rejected him. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's a new access, isn't it? A new status with the Father. Beloved children. When I take my kids out in public places, I've learned to train my father's ear to sift through that cacophony of sounds and voices. When we go to the playground, there's almost always some child somewhere crying out for mommy or daddy. They might be hurt, they might be scared, they might just want dad to see that they can make it all the way across the monkey bars. But I have learned to filter out almost all of those voices, all except the voices of my children because I love them, because I know them. And I want to hear when they're afraid, I want to hear when they're hurt, I want to hear when they're excited, and I listen because I love them. And they have boldness to cry out, Daddy, and know that they will be heard, and know that I will come to their aid. This is what Jesus wants for you. Boldness with the Father. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, He loves you. He gives you the spirit of adoption, the blessing of being his beloved child that you would be able to cry out, Abba, Father, and know that he is listening. And it's all because Jesus' work is finished. That's what Jesus wants for us. Boldness with the Father. Assurance. He also wants for us to have peace in the midst of our tribulations. Now the key here comes all the way at the end. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. When Jesus says that I've said these things so that you may have peace, he's not engaged in wishful thinking. Let's not think that. He's not saying, well, maybe you'll have peace and maybe you won't have peace. Who knows? This is a statement of Jesus' intention. He's telling them, despite the fact that they have struggled to understand and continue to struggle to understand, We'll get back to that. Despite the fact that they struggle to understand, what he has been doing has been to plant seeds of the knowledge of him that at some point, when they see the finished work of Jesus, that seed will grow and bloom into full flower. 
into the flower of assurance. He says, this is what I've been telling you. This has been my aim all along. This has been the work that I'm doing. I'm telling you about myself so that at some point you'll see it and you'll look back and you will have peace. But he balances his aim, what he's been doing all along with what he knows they will experience in the world. I've said these things so that you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulations. That seems like an understatement to you. Maybe you think Martin Luther got closer to reality. That this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. And sometimes you feel undone by the tribulations that you face. Here's what seems like a paradox, isn't it? The Lord says that he wants his people to be filled with peace even though he knows that their days will be filled with anxiety. And for some of us, it seems like this is backwards. It's got to be backwards because... We know how to read the scripture. We know that what we, do, we should see when we look into the world is this struggle between the plight of the wicked and the prosperity of the righteous. We know what to look for. It even shows up in the theology that we broadcast on our t-shirts and our bumper stickers. Know Jesus, that's with a K, K-N-O-W. Know Jesus, then you know peace. But N-O Jesus, N-O peace. We know how it works. And so we expect to look out into the world and to see all these unbelievers simply miserable. And it is a shock the first time you realize that your well-adjusted, godless neighbors are really pretty happy. Why shouldn't they be? At least circumstantially happy. They've got healthy bodies. They've got bright kids. They've got decent jobs. They have time in the weekend for barbecues and volleyball. And crises seem to flee from their direction. Crises. So why shouldn't they be happy? But somehow it seems that they've got all the peace and you're the one stuck with all the tribulation. Dear friends, make sure that you are not confusing real peace with what the world might call serendipity. What is serendipity? Serendipity is that sort of free-floating experience of just nice circumstances. It's nice to be nice when everything's nice, isn't it? It's easy to be happy when everything's going your way, but we might have to change Jesus' teaching in his parable just a little bit to understand what's really behind that all. What good is it, brothers, when you rejoice in joyful circumstances? Not even sinners smile when things are going well. That's not peace, that's serendipity. Peace is deeper than that. Peace in the biblical sense is concerned with knowing that the God who orders all things well has so wrapped you up in his plans and his purposes that he's working everything out for your good, for your salvation, whether or not he's working it out for your worldly comfort or not. You see, peace asks the deeper question. Can I continue to rejoice when there is nothing in my worldly circumstances that would bring me outward circumstantial, worldly joy? Can I continue to rejoice when the prognosis is bleak, when the future is uncertain? That's when peace shows up. It's not in the sunshine, it's in the clouds. And that's the blessing of affliction. That's what affliction does for the believer. Affliction strips away all those other things, those extemporaneous things that we are tempted to put our faith and our hope and our assurance in other than Jesus. 
Affliction dismantles all of the scaffold that we've built to prop up our lives so that we can see the foundation of assurance that the Lord is building underneath our feet. And Jesus' disciples were about to figure that out, weren't they? Verse 29, they th- oh, they think they finally got it. They think they're so close. Jesus has been telling them about a time that's coming. It's not yet here, but it's coming, and all of your questions will be answered, and you'll see everything perfectly. And notice that repeated, now we've got it. Now you're speaking plainly. Now we know that you know everything. This is why we believe. And Jesus says, you haven't understood half as well as you think you might have. It was genuine. There there wasn't a show there. They weren't just putting on to make a, a good scene. They really thought now was the time, and Jesus says, you couldn't possibly know the reality because they haven't read the end of the story yet. There is a tribulation coming that is going to uncover all the false foundations of your faith, and you can go right through their statements, and you can diagnose the way that it happens. I wonder if you have ever been caught by any of these false assurances. What do they say? Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative language. What's the danger here? The danger is thinking that peace comes as a result of our ability to make sense of what the, world, what the Lord is doing in us and in the world. That can be a comfort for a while. That's the, the sort of vantage point that we always need to struggle to have, to see that the Lord is providentially working all things out for our good. But what happens when you're faced with that situation that is hard to make sense of from a finite vantage point? And you have to ask the question whether you can trust the Lord in the darkness as much as you can trust Him in the light. That's not where peace is found, just the sense that you can make sense of what the Lord is doing. Again, they say, now we know that you know all things. You don't need anyone to question you. What's the translation? Peace is found in how impressed you are in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's a snare that might uh, catch Presbyterians more than the others would. We love to read God's Word. We love to study God's Word. We love to see those interesting, intricate connections between the Testaments. We love to sit in Bible study and Sunday school and have the insightful answers and to have everyone else think, wow, they really know all of this stuff, don't they? But beware that you are not placing the foundation of your assurance merely on those wonderful anecdotes that you see about Jesus and the way that he makes you stop and puzzle and think about these things. Beware that you're not putting your assurance somewhere other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. These are all good things. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't be impressed with who Jesus is. There is great wonder to be found in the person of our Savior. But where is your assurance? There's more to the Savior than gentle deeds and cutting religious commentary against the leaders of the day, isn't there? There's a finished work. And then their last statement, this is why we believe that you came from God. This last one might be the hardest to discern. There's that temptation to think that, that assurance comes because of your hold on Jesus and not because of his hold on you. You lay out all the reasons. This is why I believe, and this is what I have done. This is the faith that inevitably becomes downcast when we inevitably become like Peter. 
We deny our Lord in our actions or our words, and we will all become like Peter at one time or another. So what do you do as Jesus says, well, you might think that you're holding strongly now, but something's happening and you're about to be scattered. When we fail and we fall and we struggle to keep our fingers wrapped tightly around our own profession, what has Jesus told us? John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What is the measure of your assurance? Is it that you've failed him once or twice, several times over? Or is it that he has died once for all, the just for the unjust, to ransom wounded and weary sinners to himself? to raise them up when they fail, to continue his work of sanctifying them. The Lord always finishes the job he begins. He continues to infuse his imperishable life into our faltering faith. That is why he has told us, verse 28, that he came from the Father, why he came into the world, why he left the world and returned to the Father. Remind his children that they have an assurance that is based not on the strength of our grip, on the power of his love and the completion of his work. And because his work is finished, you can have boldness with the Lord in prayer. Because his work is finished, you can have peace in your tribulations beyond what your eyes can see and your mind can discern. Because his work is finished, you can have assurance in place of anxiety. When you take a seminary course on preaching, one of the things they hammer into your head is that every sermon needs a good conclusion. You've got to wrap it all up in some nice, neat package. Tell the congregation what they need to do based on what they need to know. Well, Jesus is finishing his own sermon here. And I can think of no better conclusion than the one that he gives us. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you that you are the conquering king. You are the God who has overcome the world. And in overcoming the world, you have overcome the tribulations that we face in the world. Help us, O Lord, to believe in you with all our heart. And help us always to remember that it is your strength that keeps us. And because we are yours, it is your ear that hears us in your hand that saves us. Help us to believe more and more in you, we pray in your name. Amen.